One of the things that frustrates me so much is that even in 2023, we often see women taking on the brunt of the childcare, the household chores and the emotional labour. And it's no better in medicine. We know that the gender pay gap in medicine, if anything, is still massive and still growing. So with up to 60% of the medical workforce being women, why are we still in this situation and how can we make it better? In this episode, I'm chatting with Professor Chloe Orkin and Dr. Nathana Bayankaram from the Medical Women's Federation about their many experiences of sexism in medicine, why it's an issue and just what we can do to change things. Chloe and Nathana share their experiences and discuss some strategies for action. Yes, the medical world of work can still be very difficult to navigate as a woman, but there are ways in which women can self-sabotage perhaps by not applying for jobs until they can tick nine or ten boxes out of ten and by some of their own unconscious biases. And there are some small but powerful things we can all do about this. Sexism is a problem for everybody, no matter what's your gender. So listen to this episode if you want to know what the glass ceiling, glass cliff and glass slippers are and how to avoid them. And finally, why it's not always helpful to call stuff out immediately and what to do instead. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for doctors and other busy professionals in high-stress, high-stakes jobs. I'm Dr Rachel Morris, a former GP, now working as a coach, trainer and speaker. Like frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, many of us don't notice how bad the stress and exhaustion have become until it's too late. But you are not a frog. Burning out or getting out are not your only options. In this podcast, I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts and inviting you to make a deliberate choice about how you will live and work so that you can beat stress and work happier. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. So it's really wonderful to welcome onto the podcast today, Professor Chloe Orkin. Now, Chloe is a professor of HIV medicine at QMUL. She's a consultant at BART's and she is the president of the Medical Women's Federation. And so I'm told, world expert in monkeypox. What amazing (laughs) spectrum of of things that you do. It's wonderful to have you here. We're going to talk about all of that in a minute. I've also got Dr. Nathana by Ankaram. And Nathana is a paediatric registrar in the Northwest. um, And she's also the vice president of the Medical Women's Federation. And she's host and co-producer of the Medical women's podcast. I have actually been interviewed on Nathana's podcast, so it's nice to flip roles now and I get to interview her. So welcome. Yeah, lovely to be here, Rachel. Today we are going to be talking about women, women in medicine, and there's all sorts of things that I would like to know. Obviously, as a former GP and a woman in in medicine myself, I, I know what it's like. And it would be really nice to be able to unpick some of the issues that are going on and also work out what is it that we can we can all do about it. Because 
if I'm right in thinking, sexism in society and medicine, it's not just a problem for women, is it? No, sexism is not a problem only for women. And I think people think about sexism as something that happens to women and that men perpetuate. And I think that that is often true. But sexism is really at its heart, it's around unconscious bias and it's about the snap judgments and our snap opinions that we have about what a woman should be, what they shouldn't be, and you know, what are the qualities of a woman. And it's not only men that imbibe these views, but women do too. And women internalize these things and then they enact them on each other. And to be honest, as a doctor in the workplace, what I've noticed is that when I was a junior doctor, I didn't really notice sexism particularly at those grades. The further up I went, and certainly when I took our national leadership roles, that was when I really started to notice sexism. And it wasn't just from men, it was very much from women. And I think that what happens is that I think women experience what we could call internalized misogyny and they sort of minimize the value of themselves they mistrust women themselves and they actually believe in the gender bias you know in favor of men and when you eventually watch societal beliefs which demean the value and skills of women around you all the time eventually you start to believe they're true and I think that's what underlies the fact that like in political situations where you would think that women would be really shocked by some of the politicians policies on abortion and various things and yet politicians like Trump were like massively supported by women Mm. and I think part of that is because of what they think of themselves and then if they see a woman who's not conforming to that and who's not inhabiting these gender norms that's really threatening and that's when women on women sexism starts to happen when a woman steps out of the box that they should be in so interesting isn't it i think the the reason for my question was just thinking actually is this just a podcast for women to listen to to make their lives better but actually you're right it's not just for women if we nailed the sexism issue it would be better for everybody because God knows we need some really good women politicians, don't we, who aren't having to conform to gender stereotypes and, and, and gender norms. So th- this is to make things better for everybody. You guys are are running the Medical Women's Federation. I'd love to hear a bit about how that started because it's not a new organisation, is it, nothing? It? No, it isn't. February 1917 was when the Medical Women's Federation was formed. Um, and if we think about society at that time, we were in the midst of World War One, And so during the First World War, lots of the men who were doctors had gone out into the front line. And that meant that then back, back in the UK, um, we didn't really have that many doctors. So women were finally allowed to step up and be medics in that time because we needed to have medics. But then when it was the end of the World War and men were coming back, it was expected that these women doctors would give up their posts for the men because they had been out in the war and now they were coming back. Some women were actually allowed to go and be doctors for the army, but they were never treated the same as the male doctors. They weren't given the same roles and responsibilities and were definitely treated as sort of second class to the men. So it just brought about a lot of societal changes. And so a group of women formed the Medical Women's Federation because they wanted to support women in medicine. 
but they also wanted to support women and girls in general society. So they used to go out and do talks at schools. They used to do their own research because there wasn't much research about menstruation or menopause or things that were women's health. So they they really championed all of that as well. And then since 1917, the Medical Women's Federation has been the largest body of women doctors in the UK and the voice of medical women on medical issues. How has the representation of, of women in medicine grown since then? Has it just been exponential or has it was it really, really slow start and it's just sort of blossomed in the last few years? When you look at the data of kind of women um, in medicine, in 1922, 5% of doctors were women, whereas now in 2022, 60% of doctors are women, which is fantastic. And we have made lots of progress. But when you then look at the grades of those women, it's more junior women. And if you look at seniority, women are still generally outnumbered, and particularly in academic positions or positions of leadership there isn't as much representation of women. So I think there's still there's still quite a lot to do in that space. Nathana, you're the first trainee who's been um, vice president of the Medical Women's Federation. So congratulations on that. So I'm really mm-hmm. interested in what your experience has been and what Chloe's experience has been in sort of coming up through the ranks. Because Chloe, what sort of decade were you? Were you a junior doctor on the ward? I was a junior doctor in 1998. It was my first house job. Yep, so pretty much exactly the same. Okay. Um, I came to the UK from South Africa and I did, so my SHO year in 1998, started becoming a a registrar in 99. Yeah, very content freeze, Rachel. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I must say it was was shocking. I mean, I think I just thought it was normal, but we had one consultant. He he was a surgeon. He was incredibly sexist, misogynist, openly on ward rounds, you know, just ribbing us for being the girls being doctors and just being really, really rude. And, and But we just sort of, it's like, oh, we'll just avoid this man. You know, he, he's always like that. We know he's horrible to work with. We, you just have to sort of put up with it. And then I think we were definitely treated very much differently by the nursing staff as well. And I, I'm just wondering, Chloe, was that your experience as well? Um, certain Certain personalities were very sexist. Everyone knew you just had to shut up and put up. It's interesting you say that because I've often thought that I only really started to be really aware of gender as a problem when I moved into leadership. But when you say that, I think I just thought that that was what life was about. Like I didn't see that that was a problem or abnormal. That's just how it was. Women were seen as mad and as unreliable and the hierarchy was a male-dominated hierarchy and the the male doctors were put cups of tea by the nurses and the female doctors were questioned. And I thought that that was just you know, I just was how life was. But I think when I really became aware of sexism, I mean, I was aware of it as a registrar, but I think when I became a consultant, I really started to feel that much more so when I moved into a leadership position because I took the role of the chair of the British HIV Association very young, much younger than anybody else. And I think that the combination of ageism and sexism is a particularly pernicious combination. And I think I experienced both. And I think what happened then is that I ended up having to manage situations and lead. And when you have to lead, you need to have some levels of confidence and assertiveness and clarity and firmness. And those qualities are not necessarily wanted qualities in a woman. 
And I think when women shows those qualities, they're seen as contravening gender norms. And if you don't show them, then you're weak and useless. And I really experienced sexism to the point that I actually ended up joining in the Medical Women's Federation and standing for vice president because I just felt like, well, I've experienced this is a problem. Um, you know, the experiences that I went through, I really felt really shocked and it was sexism from men from women it was all in one you know mess as a leader there were two key things that happened the one was that I'm an academic and I presented data on a novel therapy in HIV abroad it was the first time a drug had ever been used in this way and I gave had to give a lot of interviews press interviews including a television interview and it was trolled and it was trolled all on the basis of what I look like and actually, my wife saw it and she said to me, don't look at it. You've been trolled. And I said, well, what do you mean? I thought I gave a, I was describing the drug, you know, everything. What, what, what did I say that was wrong? I thought it was okay. And she said, no, it's not about what you said. It's all about what you look like. And it was just 115 comments or more, 150 comments about my face, my hair, my clothes, you know, lesbian. There was even a transphobic remark. Is it a he or a she as an example? They did not take anything I said seriously, these comments. It was not about what I said. It was purely, they were, all they could see was a woman, a non-conformist woman. That's all they could see. And I just thought if when a woman speaks about science, that is literally all that people can see. There's a serious problem in our society and I want to be part of the solution. So that was experience one. And then the other one was when I was the chair of this organization, there was a conference and a senior woman got on the stage and was basically experienced an extreme slur from another senior male doctor who's known to be a misogynist. But basically he insulted her appearance and basically sexualized what she was wearing. He was xenophobic. He was misogynist. It was quite shocking. It was on the stage. And I immediately sounded the alarm, made a complaint, and I was being flooded from the junior doctors, the men and the women, very upset, etc. What happens if I get on the stage? Mm -hmm. And then I sort of sought support from my senior colleagues, the women, and they just said to me, it's banter. Like, why are you doing this? Like, you know, it's just this person. That's just how they do things. It's banter. They resented the escalation. And it, it wasn't invariable. It wasn't everybody, but it was some people. And they wouldn't sort of support the message that I tweeted out. It, it was like I had done something wrong and I was making a big deal of things and I was creating a problem and I was devastated. I mean, I would never have kept quiet and I did, you know, I really called this out, but it was a huge personal consequences for me. You know, I felt very estranged and isolated and I really questioned, you know, everything. And, you know, I'd watch sexism, I tried to call it out, and then I'd experienced some sort of ostracization, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's when you realize that you, you're sort of caught on both sides. And you know, the men weren't happy about it either, that I'd called it out. You know, that was just, there she is being strident, being this, you know, the words that are applied to women that are not used for men, bossy, mm -hmm. strident. So it was, it was very tough. And that inspired my journey into the Medical Women's Federation. So podcast listeners won't be able to see the shocks and horrified looks on my and Nathana's face because that's just awful. And do you think if a, if a man had called that out, he would have been ostracised as, as much? It, there would have been, you know, a robust conversation, making a good point, standing up for what's right. It's, it's just what I did was challenging mm. and it was clearly challenging all round. And it really exemplified for me what the problems are. 
and that internalized misogyny and these pervasive norms about what a woman should be, the prohibitive, what women shouldn't be, women shouldn't be assertive, strident, it's not nice, you know, women shouldn't criticize, shouldn't be so critical. People said to me, why don't you speak to him first? Why don't you take him aside? I said, this is a public stage. You know, people were watching this. Young women in the audience are thinking, what is this what's going to happen to me if I get on the stage? There's things that have to be called out. There's time for a quiet word and there's time for a, this is not okay. Mm. And, you know, why as a female leader is it not for me to say this is not okay? And why do you think the women, the senior women, were not prepared to call it out? Do you think it was because they genuinely believed it was banter and they genuinely believed it was okay? Or do you think it was because they were just scared of calling it out themselves and, and they'd had to adapt themselves so much just to fit in? I think it's hard. I think people have relationships and nobody is one thing. And just because someone behaves badly and says something that's really inappropriate and, and unacceptable, it doesn't make them entirely bad. You know, they can have really good qualities in other ways, but they've also said this thing which is unacceptable. You know, and I guess some people may have seen this person as a whole person rather than a statement, you know, and may have felt that I wasn't doing that and I was responding to a statement rather than to a person. But I think that in in a public situation, there are things that shouldn't be said and shouldn't be allowed. I think it's complicated. Hard, isn't it? And I know when we were chatting earlier, you said that that there are real barriers to progress for women that we we possibly don't see. I mean, there's some obvious barriers to progress, which is the fact that if a woman wants to have a child, she has to have often have the baby and take maternity leave. That's if you're not, you know, adopting or whatever. So there's that barrier, and then often the woman is the main caregiver staying at home. So there's that sort of obvious barrier. But I know there's some other ones. What what barriers have you perceived and what have you experienced, Chloe? So I think what's really interesting, there's a lot of social theory and being an academic, I could actually, I love this stuff. But anyway, I'm going to try not to be exceedingly boring. No, bore us to death, that's fine. (laughs) Be boring. But what I'll tell you is that there's all these concepts, these almost metaphors to describe what the barriers are. Mm. And what's interesting to me, and I'm going to mention them, is almost all of them are metaphors which are about precarity. Most of them are about glass. Okay. okay, and they're about falling, and you know, it's like having these horrid dreams where you fall and you you crash, and it's you know, this is what the words are, and it's language is so important. Lang- our language defines our thoughts and our world, and basically, mm-hmm. if we think about the leadership theories, what we know is that women are less likely to apply in medicine for for leadership positions. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that also women are less likely to apply for specialties which are male dominated. So, for example, things like surgery, orthopedics, ophthalmology. And these are often the most lucrative uh, specialties. So this is also important. And, you know, these senior roles actually are important. They allow additional payments. And we know that these inform and contribute to the gender pay gap. Women are less likely to apply Mm -hmm. for excellence awards, both locally and nationally. Um, And therefore, if you don't apply, you don't get them. And there is this gender pay gap, which is a real proxy for inequity. But if we think about what these barriers are, We've all heard of the glass ceiling, haven't we? Mm. The glass ceiling, which is the barrier, the invisible barrier that prevents women from applying for these roles. And yes, you're right, Rachel, there's all these things around, you know, the motherhood penalty and, you know, caring responsibility. But I think the the biggest barrier, people talk about the biggest barrier is the broken rung. And this is about not applying for these roles because you think you're not going to get them. And the theory is, is that... Um, sometimes it's about simple things like how these roles are advertised Mm -hmm. and the language of the roles. You know, and if the job description is littered with terms like robust, 
ultra competitive. In order to do this, we require strong leadership. We now require, if it's full of sort of male gender norm words, women look at it and think, oh, this isn't for me. Okay, this isn't, you know, requires robust leadership. And if you talk about, you know, building a team, collaborative, creating together, women can see themselves in the role. You know, there's there's lots of reasons people don't apply, but I've just given a simple practical mm, example. Yeah, yeah. Then there's the glass cliff. And I think I'm afraid we've many of us have seen in the UK the glass cliff very recently. I won't specify. But the glass cliff is a situation when basically in corporations, it's when, you know, the corporation is in free fall, things are catastrophic, the investors are, you know, devastated, and whoever's been leading has been a complete disaster, we need a total change, let's bring in a woman, okay? And that's when they're willing to countenance the idea of a female leader. But of course, when you come into a complete disaster situation, the likelihood of failure is extremely high. <laughs> and then, of course, when you fail, it's, well, we brought in a woman and, you know, we can't do this again. This is what happens when you bring in a woman. It's a disaster. They're completely not up for the job. They're not fit for the role. And obviously, that's really damaging. It's not an accident that when things are catastrophic is the time that a woman gets in. This is a pattern. And that's called the glass cliff. And then there's a glass slipper which is about how the slipper that you wear, you don't fit into. There's a, there's a particular slipper, which is your gender roles and how you don't put yourself into things that you don't think you fit into. You're going to be recognized by your qualities. And, you know, this role has got nothing to do with your qualities. And it's about how, you know, stepping outside of your gender norm leads to social penalties. And I think that's what I was describing in my example. When you behave with a leadership trait, strong, competent, as a male roles, and you're not being collaborative, perhaps I should have sat down with everybody and said to them, what do you think I should do rather than taking action? You know, perhaps that would have been more acceptable. But I think there's often that paradox of women who behave in an assertive way, in a way that a man might behave in a situation, may be respected but not liked necessarily. Mm. You know, whether you're authoritative or dominant, you know, and there's all of this precarity theory. It's amazing how precarious these words are and how precarious women's feel about their leadership roles you know women feel they're on eggshells in these situations and I think there's one quote that I've heard which I just absolutely love and it's from Melissa Marchona and it says you should teach your daughters to worry less about fitting into glass slippers and more about shattering glass ceilings I get it you're pushed for time and with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops top five episodes sorry and leap into your happiest thriving self again just go to you are not a frog.com slash quiz i love that and i'm not sure how we do that i'm really interested in this thing about women not applying for jobs and things like things like that because i also reminded a friend of mine works for an organization and she was recruiting um, and she said she was really shocked recently. So they had completely blindly looked at CVs. She thought, well, there's no gender bias here. And she's a real women's advocate. And something like only 20% of the people they shortlisted were women. And she immediately went, there is something wrong here because I know. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I know it should be at least 50% for this role. Mm. 
I don't know whether it's a lack of confidence, but the, the problems that women have with applying for roles, if they don't think they're good enough, is that learned behaviour or is that ingrained in who we are? It's learned behaviour. I've helped a lot of women to apply for National Excellence Awards and you read the applications and it's everything's about we, we, we. It's just because we, we see things differently. We are socialised to be different and we see the world differently. And, a, a, you know, a man will talk about what they've done and a woman, it's like you have to suck it out of the sentence and the passive voice. It's not comfortable. And I think women are worried about being seen to be pushy and they don't they don't even imagine they could be in the role and they have to be tapped on the shoulder. But it's a lot about the job descriptions, but it's also about what women write in the application. I remember at the um it was at a previous Medical Women's Federation conference where somebody stood up and said that when you look at job applications, women won't apply for a role unless they tick nine or 10 of the 10 boxes, whereas men will apply if they tick five of the boxes. So we're taking ourselves out of the game there by not applying because we think, oh, well, I I only tick seven of the 10 boxes, so I won't apply. And I think a lot of the thing that's annoying is that with these things, they say, oh, well, with the Excellence Awards, women aren't applying. So of course, more men are getting them. But We need to be encouraging the women to apply. And just being told that information, I then was like, right, well, I'm going to start applying for things where I do tick just five of the boxes rather than 10. But if we don't know that and we're not encouraging women, then they're not going to be applying for the role. So I think there's, you know, there's system changes that need to be made. But as individuals as well, there are things that we can do. Mm. Mm. It's interesting, Nathana, because... Obviously, you're you're a trainee, and I presume you've been brought up in a slightly different decade to me. Because when I grew up, I I guess I've just had that in, inbuilt gender bias. I must have done because when I got married after uni, I, I never once thought that my career would be any different from my husband's. Maybe that was just really, really naive. But you know, fast forward 10, 15 years, I'm the one part time. I'm the one taking the bulk of the childcare. I'm the one having to sort everything out. I'm the one taking the career break. And we grew up in houses where that's the role modeling we'd had. Our mothers had both stayed at home looking after the kids. And it was just sort of, it was just accepted and ingrained. That is what you do. Now, I still see, if I'm honest, the younger women in medicine still doing the bulk of the childcare, the bulk of the emotional load, even if they have a full-time job. And I'm I'm curious as to why that, well, A, has it changed? And if it hasn't, why is that? I mean, one thing I'll say is during COVID, I mean, there was study after study, country after country, women doing upwards of two thirds of the unpaid work. And in this country, our country, there was an advert at some point in the pandemonium of it all, depicting life in COVID how, as it is, and it was a cartoon from the government. And basically the pictures were of a man lying down on the sofa and a woman handing him food. And then there was a picture of women with the children doing the schooling, the man working at his own desk. And obviously there was like a massive public outcry because this is actually the vision of, you know, what life should be in the UK coming from a government. This is that somebody actually thought this was a really good depict. And the problem is it was very true to life. That's exactly what was happening. (laughs) But that's not the ideal. But I think this is what people are experiencing. I think part of the problem is that parental leave is a big problem. 
shared parental leave is a big problem. And there are countries in Scandinavia that have schemes where it's lose it or lose it and you get equal you know, parental leave, it's divided up and you take it or you don't take it and the one goes off and then the other one goes off and it's a fair system. There's an expectation of parity. Our system is is not like that. You know, the onus falls on the woman and there's a huge motherhood penalty, you know, where you, you leave off and then you come back and your your husband has advanced three years or two years and two years ahead that they've applied for a registrar post. It, it, it adds up and there's a second child that happens again. And each time you are out of the workforce, you have to catch up, you lose confidence that you, you your head's in a different place, you come back. I mean, I'm saying this, I've, I'm completely ignorant. I've never, I haven't had children. I have animals. <laughs> Speak from my experience as an animal mother of five different animals. But I think it's a problem. It's a penalty. And each time it adds up and then you get back and you think, well, you know, other people are applying for roles, but it's too early. I haven't actually been here for two years. It adds up. Is that your experience, Nathana, in terms of yourself, your colleagues? Um, what are your expectations? Sadly, I feel like things haven't really changed. And I guess it's still a societal thing that it's still very much expected that when it comes to things like childcare, that women will be more responsible. And as Chloe said, because we have a system where you know women get maternity leave, men get two weeks of paternity leave, you're forcing women that have children to take more time off work. And the British Medical Association, they did a whole survey on sexism in medicine. And there were quite a few doctors who were women and their partners were doctors. And they said, you know, he knows that I've got all this increased clinical workload because he's he's a doctor, I'm a doctor, but I'm the one that's expected to do all the homeschooling and everything at home. It just shows that there's still so much to, to do to change in in medicine and in wider society. It's interesting because in my work with sort of other organisations outside of medicine, the, the COVID thing has massively put women back because whereas women would get childcare to go to work, and I think one thing about being a doctor is you have to, well, mostly, unless you can consult from home, you've got to get childcare to go to work. A lot of places that now working from home, their partners have gone, well, you don't really need childcare you can go pick up the kids from school and keep working and you cannot concentrate on working while your children are are at home you just can't and um and then if you're not going into the office there's i did hear someone talking about this it's a massive problem for particularly women and people with disabilities because they're choosing to stay at home because it's easy you don't have to go into the office but what happens is you have the meeting and then it might be the meeting online, but then what happens after the meeting? Everyone goes and talks in the coffee room or, or in the office and the people that are at home miss out on those informal chats, that, that stuff that goes on. I mean, I, I guess it doesn't happen so much that things happen at the golf course or in the pub after work, but it, it might do, you know, if the woman, you've got to go home or if you're part-time, you miss, you miss out on that. So there's all that really intangible stuff, I think, that just rules women out a bit. And I think you've you've touched on intersectionality. So how different parts of someone's identity can become additive or multiplicative in terms of making them feel othered or isolated. So being a young woman, you would experience ageism and sexism. Being a disabled woman, you would experience ableism and sexism. Mm-hmm. Being a young a- disabled woman, you would experience all three. And being a black young disabled woman you'd experience all four and each of these things compounds the experience of being other and sort of also compounds the amount of stereotyping Mm -hmm. that you'll experience because you're being stereotyped in four different directions. So I think that that's a very important thing that you've mentioned. 
So we, we've talked about a lot of the problems, the glass ceiling, the glass cliff, the glass slipper, which I'd not heard of before, but I, that concept so rings true. What can we actually do about this? Because we've all identified it's a problem. And I would really hope that I wasn't behaving in a way that was sexist towards other women. But I know that there's a lot of stuff around unconscious bias. And that's the problem with unconscious bias is unconscious. We don't know we're doing it. So Mm. in the Medical Women's Federation, you know, what are you saying people could do, should do? I know we've got two levels. We've got an organisational level, but you've also got an individual personal level as well. And the lead for for equality, diversity and inclusion for the Faculty of Medicine at Queen Mary. And what I can tell you is the work is, it's glacial progress, but it's that's not because of Queen Mary. That is because this work is glacial and because it's all structural. It's about process. Building in things like citizenship, which is where, you know, women often do a lot of the mentoring within universities, the supporting, and that's unpaid work, like at, in the home, and it's often unrecognised. So building in categories that recognize and value that work and give it a name and building in as one of the categories that is part of the promotion process to make visible what has been seen as invisible and not valued. So it's about building into building structures and into recruitment, you know, how you write job descriptions, making people aware that if they use certain words, people are less likely to apply. There's many things you can do, but it's all about process and structure. I have very little faith in individual change because I feel that we, unconscious bias, once we start to say, oh, we all have it, we all feel like we're helpless. And I think we have to change the structures to make them sort of unconscious bias proof. Because we can do that with our rational minds while we're trying to do something positive. Chloe, it does strike me that part of the... Um, challenge of the inclusion and diversity is actually convincing people that it's needed because presumably what you've got to convince is the 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 white males in charge that it's needed right correct how do you do that well I think it's about humility more than anything my experience is you've got to try and maintain some equanimity and not not personalize people's views and just see people as on their journeys and that you know, we've all been socialized in a certain way and you're describing things which actually are quite threatening to, to masculinity mm. in a sense because people are thinking if all these women are coming up, where's the space for me? Are they going to be prioritized? You know, there's people have their own fears and I think it's just about being respectful. The way I think about it is assertive diplomacy, doing EDI work. It's assertive mm. diplomacy. And if you go overboard, you can't be heard because people just see you as a zealot and there's no point. Is there something as well about it isn't just about being nice to everyone and making people feel good, but actually the performance of the organisation is going to be better if we get this all right. Because mm. there's there's huge amounts of evidence for that, isn't there? There's huge amounts of evidence. And I think it's not pleasant to be the bleeding heart because I'm on the executive board and I sit there as my job to call things out. And I also want to be taken seriously as an academic, but you have to be very committed to do this work. But it's very rewarding because when a process changes and you understand that you've actually safeguarded a process, it's invisible glacial progress. But it's really gratifying when things start to change. Um, I guess, I think, yes, there are lots of system changes that need to be made, but that doesn't mean that at an individual level we're powerless to do anything. So I think on an individual level... um, just thinking about things like if you're organizing teaching sessions for example junior doctors organizing teaching um if you've got colleagues that are working less than full-time and 
it is generally women who are more likely to be working less than full time. Although at the moment I have lots of male colleagues who do that as well for, for various reasons. Um, just being mindful of the fact that people work on different days and trying to alter when you have your teaching so that um, so that it's not the same people missing out on, on those opportunities. I think that's something that's really easily done. And yet most departments don't think about doing it. Another thing is things like conferences. I did a project with my sister a couple of years ago where we were looking at the Royal College conference panels. And the majority of Royal Colleges, they have got more male speakers than women speakers. Um and more um, speakers with white skin than those from minorities. And just being mindful of that. And I think, um, you know, if you're organizing a conference, think about who is going to be on your panel. Um, But also if you're going to a conference, delegates have a lot more power than they think they have. Conferences aren't going to run without delegates. And so pointing it out and speaking up and saying, oh, I've noticed that this panel isn't very diverse can you do something about this? I think, you know, as Chloe said, accepting humility and that we're learning and that we are making changes is really important. So I think it's, it is difficult because we don't know what our unconscious biases are. But I think just if you really reflect on, you know, in what ways might I be privileged because all of us are in different ways. And I don't think I really thought about this until maybe about a year, about a year ago, I had an experience where I was working with two colleagues who happened to look very much like me. They were also women and they also had brown skin, but I speak with a British accent and they don't. And I was noticing that I was being treated very differently by members of the MDT compared to them mm-hmm. and thought, hmm, there's a lot of bias going on here that I don't think I had picked up on before. So I think we do all have different privileges um, and just spending a bit of time thinking about what our unconscious biases might be and in what ways we have privilege and how we can do something to help those who don't share those same privileges with us I think um, is how each of us as an individual can make a difference. I think honestly the, the younger generations are very articulate around language and privilege they understand these terms I think it's interesting how you know, young people have grown up with the Me Too movement. They've grown up with Black Lives Matter movement. The word intersectionality is part of their lexicon. They know what it means. They understand additive. They understand privilege. That's going to make a better world. This knowledge coupled with the change that's taking place is going to pave the way. Mm. I mean, there's a hell of a long way to go, let me tell you. (laughs) Of course, the gender pay gap in medicine, I don't think it's closing very much, is it? In fact, it's it's probably getting worse from COVID. Yeah, which is thoroughly depressing. We had um, Jane Dacre on the podcast, really early episode, actually, and she's she's amazing. Um, I'd love to finish off, because I know we're nearly out of time, asking you, because we've talked a lot about unconscious bias and the things that we do, but what about the conscious stuff? What about the blatant overt sexism that we see Things that Chloe's already talked about. When you call it out, you're told it's just banter. Oh, have you got no sense of humour? What do you do about the mansplaining in meetings or the people, you know, the man that's just sort of jumping in with the women's idea when the women's trying to be collaborative? You know, what do we do about that without being called stroppy hormonal women? I think it depends how bad it is, whether you have to call it out. I think with the mansplaining, sometimes male allyship is helpful. You know, and like pointing out to people in the meeting that you feel you're being mansplained and explaining what you feel is happening to to colleagues afterwards quietly. You know, and then, you know, sometimes bystandership in the meeting, asking actively for bystandership 
you know, when you hear this again, would you be able to say something like Chloe's made that point? Unfortunately, at the moment, men have power, you know, predominantly. And it's going to take understanding that feminism is everyone's problem before things improve. It can't only be women that are feminists. Nothing will change unless everybody understands why change is needed. So it's about bringing people along. And I think it's also about realizing that you don't actually have to tackle everything in real time live. Um, you can interrupt a conversation, you can delay, you can cause sort of a disturbance that the meeting changes tr track. You can come back to something, you can discuss it afterwards. There's many ways to act. And I think we often criticize ourselves because we don't in that moment know what mm. to say. And actually action doesn't, isn't limited to an instance and if you haven't dealt with it in that moment you've done nothing you've you know it's about how you manage the situation in totality so if you take an action you think about it for a week and then go to two colleagues and say this is my experience may I ask you what was your experience would you be willing to say something the next meeting will go differently there's sometimes you have to call it out but sometimes and I think language is very difficult for me because you know I'm trying to make structural change I'm trying to win big you know, things that will allow, you know, EDI representation on boards, you know, things that are going to really make a difference. And if someone uses a word, whether I challenge that word and be seen as the, the PC police, the word police, or whether I let the word pass and try and focus on the, the theme, I think it's about weighing up. But it's also about a threshold, you know, when it's just constant barrage. I think doing it calmly is the best way. And I guess also just accepting that people may not agree. I think that's really wise about often dealing it with it there and then you don't get a good outcome do you because people get back to the corner even if they know they've done something wrong they're they're automatically it's going to be defensive isn't it and, and then nobody's better whereas if you're mature and just actually then call it out later when no one's gonna be embarrassed by it that might be better but but if someone says something absolutely outrageous <laughs> and I think to the listeners what I would say is I don't want to put myself on some sort of a pedestal or for people to think that I think I get it right. I think it's sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I, I time it right. Sometimes I know what to do and I've learned certain techniques, but it often feels very unpleasant and you often feel that you're failing to deal with it and you haven't done it right. And you could have done something better and that other people expect you to do it better because you're a person and you know, you know, you're running an amazing podcast and you speak up and you, you should be able to do it better. You're articulate. You know, I should be able to do it better. The reality is it's hard. And it's uncomfortable and hard and uncomfortable is hard and uncomfortable. And you just have to know that you're trying to do your best and with the best that you can. I think Chloe made an excellent point there that feminism is everybody's issue. And I hope that your male listeners are listening and still listening to this bit of the episode and haven't thought, oh, well, this is all about women, so it's nothing to do with me. Um, because I think having allies is really, really important. Mm. And um, it is only if men and women work together on this that, that things will improve. So just trying to be mindful of it and being supportive. And in a meeting, if you notice that one of your colleagues is is being treated in a certain way and people aren't listening to what they're saying or that they're kind of not really speaking up because they don't feel confident enough to speak up about something, just being inclusive and saying, oh, shall we go around and make sure we've heard from everybody or, or hang on a second, don't interrupt this person. They were mm -hmm. saying something. I think it doesn't have to be the person that it happens to that calls it out. All of us have a responsibility to call things out and make things better for everybody. So, um, you know, what what I would say is don't feel like you as an individual can't 
can't make a change because you're modeling to people. There's that phrase, isn't there, that whatever you permit, you promote. Mm. So we all have responsibility to model, um, model the behavior that we want to see. I think as well, remembering that this also applies at home in in, in the domestic situation as well. I think the amount of women who self-sabotage because of the G word guilt, you know, I should be doing the target. I should be doing all the housework. I should. And they don't then ask for the equality that they need with their, with their partners. Actually, you know, we are working the same. We need to divide this emotion load and just, just be very clear about it. Cause if you're not asking, then just the assumption is that you will Nine times out of ten, I think the assumption is that the women will just get on and, and, and do it because of the way we've been brought up, the way our own gender stereotypes work. And it's this ticker tape of the scripts in our heads, I should do, I should do, I ought to, this this guilt. And so we can be our own worst enemies there. So just catching yourself, catching yourself doing it to yourself almost. Does that does that make sense? Oh yes. Absolutely. You put it so well. That's picking up one's unconscious thoughts and unpacking them and thinking why am I feeling this responsibility why do I think this is my responsibility there's two of us here who says that we shouldn't be sharing this you know trying to trace that back and you know sort of interrogate the thoughts I guess brilliant so I'm we're way over way over time quickly I'd like to ask how does the medical women's federation help people with this what what are you guys doing that's going to sort of help support people in this a mixture of things I guess so um we have conferences twice a year discussing different various different topics on the podcast I try and um discuss different topics to try and encourage medical women in their careers mm-hmm. we're also doing various research projects looking at different aspects of um women and, and medicine so lots of different things and I would just like to quote our immediate past president professor Nina Modi who made the point that there are 500,000 women doctors in the UK. And if every single woman doctor was part of the Medical Women's Federation, they wouldn't really be able to ignore us. Um, There's so much power that that we'd be able to have to make difference. So um, I would just like to point out that that is a very good reason why I think women should join the Medical Women's Federation. And for men, even though you can't join, if you are really good at being an ally, then you do get to become an honorary member. That's wonderful. Well, we'll definitely put all the links in the show notes so people know how to know how to access that. So, Chloe, what are your top three tips? My top three tips are don't fall, don't fall foul of the broken rung, get on the ladder, apply, Mm. read through the, you know, the male dominated language to try and see yourself, um, you know, there. Um, don't be afraid to use allyship if you need it in order to change ingrained behaviors and don't see inability to interrupt sexism in the moment as a failure. There's no time limit at which point you can't address that when you know better, do better and understand, help people to see that when they know better, that they should do better. As, as Maya Angelou said, let's say my thoughts on Maya Angelou's thoughts. Oh, love, love her. Thank you. Uh, Nathana? I don't know if they're all top tips, but I guess um, mine would be, you know, equality is an issue for everybody. So um, don't think that it isn't for you. Another one is that as well as trying to make system changes, there are differences that each of us can make as an individual. So um, don't, don't underestimate the power that you have. I guess my third one is just understanding a bit of the context of the past and where 
where everything has come from and how we've ended up in this situation um, is quite helpful to then see what still needs to be done um, and what differences still still need to be made, even if at a glacial level. I think we'll all have a responsibility to kind of make things better for those that come after us. That's just been so helpful. So if people wanted to get hold of you guys, uh, how can they do that? I guess the Medical Women's Federation would be a good starting point, but I'm at Queen Mary University of London. I am on Twitter at Dr. Nathana and the podcast is the Medical Women Podcast and it's on all platforms wherever people might want to listen. Great. So give that a listen. Join the Medical Women's Federation. Contact these guys if you want to uh, know more about anything. And thank you so much for coming on. That was just absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure try and get you guys back at some point. So thank you for being here. Now, just to let you know that the next Medical Women's Federation conference is taking place on the 17th of March. It's online, so you've just about got time to grab your place on it now. And if you've missed out for this month, then they run regular conferences and events. Do check out all their stuff at the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at youarenotafrog.com. I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now.